89.5 FM in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Stay tuned for the Organic Farm Stand coming right up. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is surely come. I work for the union because she's so good to me. WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you, when does it come to us? First and third Thursdays of every month. And what time does it come? 12 to 1 Eastern time. All right. (laughs) Do I pass the quiz today? 12 to 1 which? A.M. or P.M.? Oh, 12 to 1 P.M. All right. Beautiful. Do I get my star for today? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was Laura Modlin, by the way. My name is Richard Hill. Chris Ferrio is here. Hello. Uh, hi, hi, Chris. We have Steve on the phone. Steve, are you there? Yes, glad to be here. Uh, yeah. Hi, Steve. Fabulous to have you. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a sock dollager of a show today. Do you know what Amazing. That, it's going to be amazing. Do you know what that word means? No. Did guess. you just make it up? <laughs> no. <laughs> St- Steve, do you know what it means? I have not heard that word before. It's like okay. socket to me. It's good. Not bad. No, actually, it it's, predates socket to me. I'm, I'm quite sure by many decades. But it means <laughs> sort of like the slam dunk, yeah. absolutely definitive, crushing ending of a particular event. Well, you know, that's because we have a special occasion, which is that it's going to be the 100th show on SoundCloud. Oh, my God. Well, Steve is, doesn't have a. You know, I know I should have struck him? one off for him. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh wait, there you go. What was that? Yeah. Something. That cool. was a little. I was trying to give that sound effect. Yeah. That was pretty good. How'd you do that? Yeah. How'd you? you know, I covered my mouth and made the, <laughs> made the sound and waved okay. in front of it. I thought it was one of those little Audubon bird call things. <laughs> let's let's give ourselves a, a, a round of applause. Yay. Okay. Because. This indeed, uh, we got to tell you that we now have very cool ways of disseminating our program, keeping it live and kicking and available to people really forever. Right. That's the word I'm searching for. And we also have a Facebook page that's that's active now. No, is that what you were? I thought you you meant SoundCloud. So, yeah, so the SoundCloud thing is we now have one, this will be the 100th show that we put up. (laughs) Get those those people out of here. And the people can't see the cake. (laughs) No, but we do have 
fresh oregano and what else? Uh, Bergamot and lavender from the garden. Yeah, it's a pillow pack. I'm going to put it under my pillow. That was from Chris Ferrio. He brought it from his own very own garden. And uh, but so we have this uh, incredible library of sound library of uh, organic farm stands available on SoundCloud. If you go to, to the homepage of WPKN, look for the podcast link and drop that down, and then you'll get your magnifying glass out because SoundCloud is written very small in there, and you just click on that. And then look around for the organic farm stand. You will find, after I put up this show, that will be 100 shows on there. That is not even all the... <laughs> <laughs> My God, it's like Pavlov's dog, I think. Pavlov's dog, yes, that was yes. what I say. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, not including the ones that um, through uh, mechanical ineptitude I have not done yet. Yeah. <laughs> That's, well, not to mention the ones that, were, that predated SoundCloud, because we had probably five years of shows that we did before SoundCloud came into our technological grasp. Okay, yeah. That's no. a fact, Chris. You don't, oh, no, I, at, I believe you. It's true. Don't, um, don't, I'm just not sure if I was around then. I mean, no, I was around. you weren't. You know, no, no, you were not. We had, we had, <laughs> <laughs> there was a time before Chris Ferrio. There was. But uh, anyway, so <laughs> what else did I want? Oh, yeah, so the Facebook thing. Tell us about that, Laura. Okay, so I've started, um, I've taken over, I've kidnapped our Facebook page, and it's um, the Organic Farm Stand at WPKN, and it's on Facebook, and I've, and speaking of of SoundCloud, once they're up on, each show is up on SoundCloud, I will be posting a link to them on the Facebook page, along with information from our um, guests that, you know, to, to follow up. And I hope it's a really good addition. Yeah, it's already been really built out quite nicely by Ms. Maudlin, who she's put up a lot of photos there, some of them from Masara Farm, recent expedition there on the uh, wonderful day mm-hmm. they had recently. That was what? When Spring was that? celebration. It was great. When was that, Steve? Which That was last weekend or weekend before? That was, yeah, two weekends ago. It ended up being Sunday May 21, we had a beautiful day Sunday after a rainy day Saturday. So we That's moved right. to yeah. our rain date. So we're yeah. grateful for that. Yeah. So some great pictures from that event, other t- other ones from time when uh, Laura and I went out, uh, happened to cross paths there. And uh, so, yeah, it's fun. Website's looking really nice. Good work from Laura there. All right. What do we need to do? We need to tell you what's happening on this show. Right. This is the first Thursday of the month, so we have Vincent Kay, who will soon be on the line with us to tell, give us the honeybee update. This is, PKN has become like all pollinating all the time. We do, all, that's all we do on this, pro, on this radio well, program. We pollinate. I mean, we have uh, uh, Kevin Gallagher's show. He, he's uh, digging in the dirt, often talks about you know, pollination issues. We have the um, the diagram, which comes on right after this show. Fantastic uh, environmental report, which talks about pollinator issues. Our public service announcements are 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 shot through with pollination information. I mean, it's incredible. PKN. It's important. It's pollination, a very important well, topic. It's yeah, well, it's how life begins. Yeah, and 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 of course we have uh, today our pollination king, Vincent K, will be here. 
So um, uh, in addition to Vin, uh, Vincent, who will be here at about 20 after, we have a special uh, report from Laura. Tell us. We have a special guest. Very excited about Sandy Wilson will be on our show. She is the um, Yukon's Fairfield County Master Gardener Program Coordinator and an advanced master gardener. And she's going to tell us what that means and how people could pursue it if they wanted to. And it's, um, it's, it's going to be great. Indeed. So that will be coming just after 1230. We're going to try to make everything fit together like a like a uh, uh, like a like a puzzle or like a well oiled machine. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> this is who's going to write my script for me. I, I need. Yeah, I, I need a help. I need. Yeah, we need to work on your improvisation skills. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think you're great, Richard. I just rolled out of bed. You're my so. King Richard. <laughs> I'm King Richard. Oh, my God. Hope, I hope it's not Richard III. All right. Well, let's move right into Laura Modlin's uh, solar lunar report. Okay. So as we know, we're almost at the longest day of the year, which means that, you know, I'm having a little bit of anticipation grief because the days will start getting shorter after that. And um, I realized, though, that today's show marks six months that I've been um, here with you wonderful people. Wow. And, and that whole time, the days have been getting longer. So it's going to be hard for me to adjust. But I also realized that, like, come about August, I should be getting up in time for the sunrises. So that's a good comp compensation. So the last show, um, since the last show, we have gained 22 minutes, and which is five minutes less than we gained previously, but it seems to be slowing down. Today's sunrise at 5.22 a.m., um, and sunsets at 8.19 p.m. for a total of 14 hours and 37 minutes. And we only have 12 more minutes to gain before the solstice. It's, it's sad. Hmm. <laughs> um, it is. I, I agree. And, it, I, and actually, I, do you mind if I interject no, something? I, I noticed like um, I basically wake up with the sun usually. Uh -huh. And um, it's been getting light. starts to get light at 4.30 in the morning, believe it or not. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm not up that that's early. A little pre-dawn stuff. <laughs> yep. And you know what else I think is important to mention is twilight. You have not talked about that. And, you know, for example, oh, you got a twilight report? Um, well, I have, no, not a twilight report, but I just wanted to mention that when you're close to the summer and winter solstices, the sunrise and sunset lingers longer. It does there, there is more twilight, and, the, and it takes longer for the sun to rise and for it to set. But then mm. at the um, equinox, the fall and, and spring equinox, it's really fast. And the closer you get to the equator, um, it, it, if you're near the equator, it's always really fast. So Because it's always around 12 and 12. I just thought that was interesting. So what, because um, you mentioned twilight, What what is Twilight is the the time in between the actual daytime and it and darkness. I think it's after the sun literally goes dips 
out below of sight. The, oh. Below the then, horizon, but it's got, still light. Yeah, yeah, then you got you got you got another hour practically of, of yeah. actual mm. navigable navigable light. No, you're right. Okay. I haven't really looked into that, but I will now that you're asking about it. I will look into it for the next show. But yeah, there's the time because twilight, and then there's civil twilight. I have to look into all of this, but it is there is a time because that's because I think sunset is when the sun goes below the horizon, but there's still light. It hasn't it hasn't right. turned off. You know, it yep. hasn't. It's Turned still off. there. Yeah, it, it's still there. So, um, but that yeah. is interesting. I will. Okay. And then also the one other thing is I wanted to mention that Saturday is the full moon, the strawberry full moon. Can anyone tell me why it's called the strawberry full moon? No, I bet, I bet Steve, Steve could. I bet Steve knows. Well, it, well, it is strawberry season, of course. You know, the June strawberries are coming on, so. Not sure if that's the reason, but it lines up pretty well. It is. You nailed it. Good going, Steve. Here, that's a little noisemaker for you. <laughs> yeah, it's, and actually, I'm not sure if Laura's done, but I, I, I'm gonna. I think I might actually say, Laura, you're done. I'm done. Okay, good. Because <laughs> that's it. Because we, 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 we spend a whole lot of time celebrating our 100th I show. I know. We have to get right. on with things. So we need to move on to the Small Farms Report from Masara Farm in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Steve Muno is here to uh, give us that report. No frost this show. No frost. No, no. But a, a really good transition with the strawberry moon, because what I would share first and foremost is one of the most exciting things of the season, and that is our strawberries. Um, you know, June is, is sort of the month for our June-bearing strawberries, and uh, we've had a little bit of a head start. And I forget if I mentioned in the last show, but we sent some strawberries in one of our high times last fall, uh, and as a result, we've been harvesting strawberries a little bit early. So for the last few weeks, they've been coming on pretty well. We've got a good harvest, and we've been bringing to the farmer's market in New Haven the last couple weeks. Um, and those berries were able to you know, withstand the, the little bit of frost that we had. Um, but we have another set of plants that are outside, and they are just, we did our first bit of harvesting uh, last week as they, the first berry started to ripen. And our hope is that uh, harvest from that patch will carry us through the month of June and that they didn't get too stunted through that little cold dip and little nip of frost we had here at 31 degrees. Um, about 10 days ago now. Hey, Steve. So strawberries are exciting, and wherever you are, there might be a farm near you that you can pick your own or certainly at the markets you go to. So it's an exciting time of year. Yes. Do you, um, do you, ha you have a farm stand on your farm, right? Do you, we you do. It's not open all the time. Okay. Come here tomorrow from 12 to 5 will be open. And then it's the opening market on Sunday at Edgewood Park in New Haven. And so we're there from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. So we'll be there the next two Sundays. And then we take a little break from the weekend market as our CSA begins in mid-June. So we kind of, from mid-June to the end of July, we, we hold off on the weekend markets just to make sure that we're uh, fully dialed in with our CSA operation. It takes a lot of our um, energy and we have a good commitment to our CSA subscribers. So, Mm -hmm. um, but then we'll return to the market uh, late in July or early August. Uh, but we'll be at the Wednesday market at the Q House on Dixwell Ave in New Haven starting mid mid June on Wednesday afternoons. So, um, yeah, tomorrow we'll have some strawberries out in our stand. 
12 to 5 here at Massaro Farm in Woodbridge, and then on Sunday at Edgewood Park at the Farmer's Market there. So opening market's always a, a good time, so I encourage people to come down there. It's a really lovely park and a really great place to come for the day, too. Yeah, that's, that's I think, one of the Thanks, Steve. fun times we had when we went, we went out there on a Friday. Wonderful stuff. I'm, I, we uh, love the marinara sauce that was available at the, uh, at the indoor... Whoa, you guys, oh, oh, I see Chris is on the phone. <laughs> so it's that, the background mumble we have to contend with. But You know, I love the crushed tomatoes I got there at the spring celebration. I got a bottle. They're so good. Ah, yes, indeed. All right, yeah. well, very glad to hear that. Yeah, fabulous stuff. How, how does that work there? Do you have, like, a separate food prep uh, crew that does that, or how, how do you do that? We actually take our um, our tomatoes and we bring it into New Haven to Gracie's Kitchen at Long Wharf, and they do the processing for us. So, um, you know, there was a time long ago where I used to make some, uh, you know, just uh, for myself in, in the home, making, you know, uh, canned tomatoes and salsa, and I stopped doing that. We've turned it over to uh, professionals in a, in a certified kitchen Um so, so that's what I end up eating too. Uh, you know, maybe we'll make a little fresh batches for ourselves to eat in, in the home. But mm-hmm. our products are all made off-site. So, um, so yeah, Gracie's Kitchen is our spot, and we're really grateful that they are so close that we can bring our products to them to make our salsa, our Bloody Mary mix, our crushed tomatoes and marinara sauce, and our green salsa, which is sold out right now. But we're going to make a new batch uh, as soon as we have tomatoes in. Do you make that with green tomatoes? We do, yeah, and that happened early on from really an accident of uh, or a lack of pruning really on our part early on, one of the first years, many years ago, that we planted tomatoes in our high tunnels, planted them too close and didn't do enough pruning, (laughs) and then needed to do a lot of pruning and pulled off a lot of green tomatoes. So I encouraged our CSA subscribers to make green tomato salsa. And then I thought, hey, we should also do that and uh, talk to the folks at Gracie's. And they, they, they had recipes for that. And uh, we've been making green tomato salsa ever since. So, Steve, do you actually um, can can or jar that that and sell it like that? Or, you know, you're... you're- yeah, it's... Or do you do you or or basically Gracie's chick uh, a kitchen sells it? We sell it, so they they give the jars back to us and then we sell it. Okay, so we take it to them for processing and jarring, and then we put our labels on it. So they're getting our our uh, you know our tomatoes and maybe our herbs uh, to put into it, and then um, you know they're adding the things like the olive oil or salt or pepper um, and making it in their certified kitchen. Uh, and then bring it, and then we take it back. All right, Steve. Why don't we, as we start to wrap up and get ready for Vincent? And I, there's going to be a lot of interface between the three special events of today: Steve, Vincent, and Sandy, our master gardener. Uh, a lot of cross pollination will occur between the three, <laughs> between the three. But uh, uh, what, Steve, what else is going on in terms of you know your planting your tending of newly planted stuff and, and what will the CSA begin to uh, begin to distribute soon? This, this is heavy planting time for us. Um, you know, we're still little bits of harvesting like our, our greens, our kale, some lettuce, some herbs, but uh, we're still getting lots of things in the ground. So um, 
you know, we have a wave of tomatoes and peppers and eggplants in. We've got our winter squash in the ground already. We've got our next planting of cucumbers and squash getting ready to go in the ground. Uh, we've got, you know, in order to have things throughout here, like lettuce, like beets, we need to plant them continually throughout the season. So something like our peppers and eggplants and tomatoes, we might plant once and then maybe there's a little slightly later planting, you know, within a couple of weeks. But we do successions of lettuce and beets and carrots and radishes. So there's, you know, some things that we got in a month ago or maybe even now this next set of planting. So uh, there's still quite a lot for us to get in the ground over the next few weeks, but we've gotten a lot in already. So I'm happy about that. Uh, things like green beans still going in the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a small, you know, educational planting of corn, beans, and squash that we're going to get in the ground soon. Um, so yeah, there's still quite a bit happening planting wise. And then after all that rain we had had, we've had a dry spell here. And so making sure everything needs water that it needs, uh, is pretty key for us too. So today it's going to get into the mid eighties tomorrow. It might get upper eighties, nineties. So we need to make sure things are watered in advance of that and can make it through what might be a hot few days before we get the next rain. So, you know, we had been oversaturated for a while and now we've had, you know, maybe two weeks, two full weeks, uh, or coming on two full weeks without rain. Yeah, so... So we're managing that. And just give us the lore on when the best time to water your gardens. I guess it might be different for different plants, you know, that you're watering, but is there a general rule for best time of day to water your... Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of, especially if you get to the heat of the summer, you know, watering in the morning and the evening will allow better saturation. So the water you're putting down doesn't evaporate so quickly. So morning and evening, but being careful about um, what you're watering uh, and where you're watering. So for example, our tomatoes, our peppers, our cucumbers, they don't like to get wet on their leaves. So we really want to make sure we're getting the um, ground wet. So it's getting right into their root zone and we're not cooling down their leaves because leaf wetness can lead to a foliar diseases and things that will, you know, so that's, you know, mold and such on their leaves or bacterial diseases there. Um, so particularly if they're, they're going to get wet on their leaves, we don't want that to happen at night because we don't want them to stay wet overnight. Um, so if the way you're watering is overhead for everything, you know, or using a garden hose and you're really getting all the, the leaves wet, um, I would really suggest watering in the morning then and trying to avoid that, uh, getting those leaves wet on those particular, all the fruit and crops. Uh, we want to avoid getting their leaves wet. Whereas, you know, lettuce and greens, we, it's okay to cool them down like you would, you know, taking a shower for yourself or jumping in the water to cool your whole body down. You can do that with greens. Um, you still want to get their root zone wet so that they're really um, bringing that water through their system to cool themselves down. But it's okay to get them their leaves wet. But so generally, I would say watering in the morning or evening is better. There are some details to pay attention to to make sure you're not getting, you know, bringing on disease uh, for your fruit and crops. All right. Good, good information there. Let's bring in Vincent K. Uh, Swords into Plowshares Honey, our monthly honeybee report. Vincent, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you, Richard. It's it's a great time to be out and about. I'll tell you, working the land, it's um, 
it's interesting uh, what Steve was saying about uh, the water. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, three inches of rain or so a couple of weeks ago, but now we really have a surface drought is what I call it. The first, mm. you know, the, the first three or four inches of, of soil, unless you've uh, really uh, made the compost necessary to hold that moisture, it's gone. And uh, the many farmers that I know are irrigating already, especially seedlings that they're planting uh, from greenhouse out into uh, open fields. So it's a tricky time of year, but everything is going in. And um, I always say it's the high mass of beekeeping um, because everything is really blooming now. We've we've got the tulip poplars blooming. We've got the black locust, which is sort of gone by, and uh, clover. Clover is uh, out in, in, in heavy amounts uh, in ball fields and other areas. Um, and that's a, that's a great source of nectar for, for pollinators, but honeybees in particular. Um, we've been very busy. Uh, this year, we, we had about 150 hives that we rented out to orchards. And um, we, we brought them back out of the orchards, um, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago. Because uh, pollination was early this year. It was uh, something that, uh, you know, from that first early hot spell that we had really pushed a lot of the bloom forward to the point where it wasn't going to stop. So it was a, it was an early bloom on apples, peaches, pears, um, things like this. And we rented bees and, and they went in and came out really strong. So I think they did a good job while they were in the orchard. And we did something that we usually, um, we haven't done in, in recent years, but we began to split those hives um, most of the 150 hives that, that go into the orchards are, are slated to go in. We have other hives that never move from their locations, but these these hives that we, we brought back from pollination, we split. We did a grafting procedure and added another queen bee so that we doubled the number of hives and sold many of those hives to other beekeepers. So um, we did that and were pleased with the results from that. So that's that's great. Um, honey boxes are going on the hives now, and um, we have some yards where honey boxes are full, and the second honey box is going on, and we're hoping that we have enough honey boxes. Uh, we put out probably about a thousand boxes um, to all the hives that we have. So um, that's to give you a general idea. It's a lot of handling of equipment, um, but anyhow, that's that's sort of where things are at now. You, as a beekeeper, you can almost do no wrong to the bees because they're really not interested in you. Um, they kind of come and go from the hive, and uh, the nectar flows are what they're interested in and swarming. Oh, by the way, the, the other thing that we try to do is prevent swarming, which is why we also split those hives that had come out of the orchards. Um, and uh, you want to prevent the swarming so that you can get a bigger honey crop. Uh, and uh, keep your bees. If, what? if the hive swarms, yeah. it, it divides and takes off and into the woods, and you'll never see them again. What so what can, what instigates or provokes the swarming? That would be a college course that you could offer. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty complex. There's a number of factors. Um, certainly, um, the light of the season, um, the amount of light in the day um, is part of that, but also um, how crowded a hive is. Um, they fill the hive very quickly uh, with eggs. The queen lays 1,500, 2,000 eggs a day. Um, so you can see the exponential notation in hive population 
is just bursting at the seams. They run out of space, um, and they're also trying to store honey at the same time. So that's one of the things, and they say, well, things are really good. Maybe we can trick this queen into laying a fertilized egg in one of our special cells, which they do, and then 21 days later, out comes another queen, and you can only have one queen in a hive. So they go. But um, there's a lot of different factors, the age of the queen, um, uh, just just many factors that you could probably study, and, and it's – it's it's a topic that has a lot of detail to it, so it's well, probably not good for radio. <laughs> well, no, you you gave some very good detail there. So, um, uh, actually, I have a question, Vincent. Um, yeah. So when basically, um, col- well, what what do you call them? Colonies of bees, like the groups yeah. of bees. Um, yeah. Can they uh, they can't exist without a queen, right? So if the swarm might leave, but they won't have a queen with them. Well, when the second queen in the hive hatches, the parent queen um, whips her retinue into a frenzy and spends a number of days uh, kind of getting everything ready to go. And the the, the hive actually sends out scout bees. The swarm that's going to leave sends out scout bees to investigate where they're going to go in advance. So they already know before they leave the hive where they're going. Right. Uh, it, it's just, it's amazing. And it, you know, they've got it already mapped out. It's like a GPS. And um, they go, and she goes with them, uh, the parent queen, and the virgin queen stays behind. Oh, she'll start okay. the whole process over again. Uh, she'll go out, get mated, come back, and hopefully before winter you have a hive that um, will make it through the winter and into the next season. That's just part of natural reproduction. But, of course, beekeepers want to prevent that because, you know, the more bees you have, the, the better or larger your honey crop will be. Hmm. Okay. So, um, they've actually done videos of swarms in the air, and uh, the bees will be coming and going from the moving swarm in the air, directing it like radar to their new home. It's, hmm. it's quite amazing. Does, does a beekeeper, based on the movements of the bees, is the beekeeper able to predict where that swarm will wind up? Um, not really. Um, you can kind of see, uh, if, if you come upon a hive or a, a, an empty hive or a hollow tree and there's be- a few bees coming and going with no real purpose for being there, you would say, Hmm, they're investigating. Hmm. They're, they're looking for a new home, probably to take that information back to the, the uh, the mother colony. Um, so that, you know, and if it's, if it's got everything they need, um, off they go. And it's, it's amazing. They move right into the, the new location, and within um, a couple of hours, they're already bringing back pollen and nectar, um, and swarms characteristically have a very aggressive uh, work ethic. Um, they uh, set up shop very quickly. They're very prolific with honey gathering, and um, you know, it, it's a good thing um, for nature, but unfortunately, we have uh, pests and predators now, like mites and other critters that just uh, hit them in the winter, and it, it's very hard for them to survive. Probably eight, seven to eight uh, swarms per uh, you know year don't uh, don't survive the first the first year of life. So anyhow, can I ask a question about the swarms? People, when people see them at their outside their homes, what is the best course of action for them? 
Well, the main thing is not to spray them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I get many calls um, every year about this. And I say to them, look, I'm not an uh, exterminator, so <laughs> we're going to try to work this out. And um, what I suggest to people is to leave them alone. A swarm that's hanging on a branch uh, usually won't stay there. It's, it's, a, it's a temporary home. They've, they've, come, they've tumbled out of the hive in a frenzy of hormones and, and haste, and they, they need to find a home. So sometimes they come out of the hive and, and form a big cluster on a branch, and then they'll send out their scout bees to look for a permanent home. In which case, I would let them be there for a couple of days. I think they'll find the, their way and will be gone. In which case, you know, most people call me back and say, God, how did you know that was going to happen? <laughs> but that's, that's one of the things that happens often. And um, the other thing is, you know, uh, it's a great teaching tool. I, I always say if, if they're not in a place that's inconvenient as far as coming and going out of a doorway or something like that, I mean... You could you could just leave them alone. I mean, I, I know people. It bothers people to have insects coming and going from their house or under their clapboards or a chimney or something. But if they're not coming in the house, um, I, I think it's a great thing. I mean, uh, I, I don't think they're really harming anything. They're not like ants or termites. So it's um, you know you'll have your your hive of bees for your garden and and for your neighbor's gardens and everything else. You, it's a great teaching tool. For should kids. people who should people call for help if they need help, like relocating it or something? <laughs> call well, Vincent. Call Vincent. Well, uh, usually, <laughs> What's your number? No. <laughs> I usually don't um, get involved in these things. That's why I tell people to just wait. Hang on, they'll probably find their way somewhere else. But will but, the Backyard um, Beekeepers Association send someone? Backyard Beekeepers Association would have a, a directory of beekeepers that might be interested in getting. Uh, or fetching up swarms. The uh, uh, Agricultural Experiment Station here in New Haven, I believe, also has a directory of beekeepers um, that may be interested in getting swarms. So you can start with that and then hopefully uh, work it out, you know. Well, I got to tell you, who needs Game of Thrones when we've got Game of Swarms? It's, <laughs> it's, it's what a story. Swarms are great. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's remarkable the sound and the smell of a swarm leaving a hive because it smells like honey and pheromones of the bees and it's just it's intoxicating it's just um it's an amazing thing and the sound is incredible it sounds like a railroad i mean they are just coming out you know by the tens of thousands literally and uh some of them i've seen have been as big as basketballs and even bushel baskets and uh just hanging on a tree and um Boy, when they take off to go to their permanent home, the sound is just um, just beautiful. It's it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Mm, wow. I'm gonna mm. hope for the, to have that experience myself. Well, uh, right, right now I, I will say that we we are renting bees still. Um, they, they've come out of the orchards, and and now we just shipped off a load into a cranberry bog out in Killingworth, Connecticut. So um, we follow the season, and we follow the uh, the bloom of certain. Um, vegetables and fruits and berries and uh, the people who grow them. So it's, um, we have bees out again <laughs> at this cranberry bug. So that's, it'll be an interesting honey when it comes back. It's, a, it's really wonderful. The interface between, you know, Steve's report, Vincent's report, 
and the and the upcoming report with our guest uh, Sandy uh, Wilson. Is that right? Yep, Sandy right? Wilson. Sandy Wilson, who is standing by, and I, I hope uh, Steve and Vincent will also stand by because I think there's going to be, as I said, some cross pollination going on between the three of you. <laughs> I will so, try. I have got to be somewhere at one o'clock, but I'll have the phone with me until one o'clock sharp. <laughs> oh, then you're you're good. You're good to go. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, Laura, take it away. We have a special. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, as some of you may know, UConn, University of Connecticut, is Connecticut's um, land grant grant college, um, and from the land grant college came um, the extension for Master Gardener program. And um, Sandy Wilson, our guest, is the uh, Fairfield County Master Gardener program coordinator and an advanced master gardener herself. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on today. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you here. And I thought maybe we could start off by just like telling people who don't know, what is a master gardener? Well, a master gardener is someone that has taken the University of Connecticut Extension Master Gardener Program. It's a nine-month-long, rigorous, comprehensive horticulture program. Um, it's based on science, uh, and it also has a huge volunteer component. And once uh, you go through this program, you actually earn a certificate, a Master Gardener certificate. So tell us, uh, Sandy, a little bit more about what is when you come out of that program. What are your, what do you do with that information? And and is there some kind of certification? that you're given that allows you to do certain things that, you know, the general public cannot do? Yeah, this, the program is, it's a wonderful program for anyone that has an interest in gardening and a, and a desire to just share that knowledge with others. Um, we train you on all aspects of horticulture. So we start from the basics. Um, it's, it's over 100 hours of online and classroom instruction. And um, we teach people everything from soils um, to entomology, uh, plant pathology, and then we get into all the individual um, plant crops like turf, grass. Um, we get into uh, vegetables, fruits, ornamental plants. So once you go through the program, uh, you have a great background. And part of the program is that you need to give back 60 hours of volunteer time. And we do lots of things in the community. The Master Gardeners um, volunteer in all different ways. Uh, and I was just listening to your guest speaker about the bees. And, you know, one of the things that Master Gardeners are involved with are pollinator pathways, um, well, we, we could use a, we could use a couple of volunteers. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we master gardeners in Fairfield County put in close to five thousand hours in the community last year in, in various ways. Um, so once you take the program, you are you know well versed in growing uh, different plant material, and you can also answer gardening questions for people. And that's one of the things that master gardeners do at the extension offices across the state. Yeah. I, I know that, uh, the garden center nature works in Northford, Connecticut, they have uh, one or two master gardeners on the staff 
and they go out and they do different things. So what what are some of the things that you know master gardeners are hired to do if they you know are working in in a facility like that? Well, um, basically the program is designed as a volunteer program. So most of the things we do are volunteer based. Um, some people take the program because they do want the knowledge and then do go with that knowledge to work at different gardening uh, places and things like that. But, um, but it's really designed to um, go out in the community and help. Like we install and help install community gardens. We staff booths at fairs where we answer gardening questions. Um, we go out and give talks to uh, individual uh, gardening clubs and at libraries. Um, it's all about sharing the knowledge with others. We work with schools, helping them install gardens and things like that. And we do offer a free service at all the extension offices where you can bring in your uh, plants. If you have a plant problem, we offer free diagnostic services, and we answer gardening questions. Um, so there's been thousands of master gardeners that have gone through the program. Um, the program's been around since 1978 in Connecticut. Um, so thousands of master gardeners have gone through it uh, and earned their certificate. I wonder if Steve uh, Mono, our itinerant uh, farmer in residence, so to speak, here at the Organic Farm Standards based at Masara Farm, if you have any question for uh, Sandy Wilson. Well, I would first, I'd just like to say thank you for having the program. I mean, we've been fortunate at MSR to have a number of master gardeners come through here to do some of their service work. We have a couple of master gardeners on our board of directors who've uh, helped steer things. And we have some new master gardeners who are interested in putting in a uh, pollinator pathway. You know, we've got plenty of pollinator plants here, but they want to do a little more work on that and, and put up the signage and such and, and really continue to grow our pollinator plants here. So we've benefited tremendously over the years uh, from Master Gardeners. And um, I guess I'd be curious, you know, how we get, how we expand the program and how farms like ours can can help spread the word and, and um, have more people take this on. Well, that's wonderful that, you know, you've had direct experience. We, as I said, they put in a lot of hours at all different types of community projects. Um, yeah, I'd love to get uh, spread the word about the program. Um, we do have applications that go out um, around the middle of August. Um, you can actually get them off of our website. Uh, and it is the program is offered at five different locations throughout the state each year, and they rotate. Um, so they go through different counties, and we offer the program um, also in some non-traditional formats like online and uh, sometimes on Saturdays so that we can kind of get to help people that can't come. You know, they work during the week or something like that. Um, but, yeah, on our um, website, which is www.mastergardener.yukon.edu, um, there's more information about our program, and there's also um, the applications will, will be put up there, like, around the middle of um, August. You had said that you, um, you welcome, you don't need a horticultural background, but what's involved with applying for the program? 
Um, we um, ask that you have um, an interest in gardening and that you are willing to commit to this program and the volunteer aspect of it. Um, you, you know, there's 60 hours of volunteer time required. So after you take the classes, which run from January through April, um, then the uh, community outreach portion starts. And you have to do a 30-hour supervised internship in one of the extension offices and uh, also participate in 30 hours of volunteer time in the community. So as long as you have, you know, you're able to do that uh, and you have an interest in gardening, anyone, you know, any adult can take the program. I mean, we have people that have been uh, farming their whole life and they really want to know the science behind it. And they take the program. And then we have people that have never put a shovel in the ground and just want to learn more. So, um, yeah, as long as you have an interest, um, there's a, a, a fee for the program, um, for the tuition. And uh, as I said, there's a, there's a lot of information. If people have questions, they can contact our, our office. Um, we'd be happy to give them more information or, or look at the website. So this year, so every year you go to a different county in in Connecticut to host the program, correct? Yes, they switch off. So we try to get around the, the state at different areas, and we also offer the program up at the Bartlett Arboretum in Stanford. That's another location that uh, we offer the program. So yeah, we try to do that so that different parts of the state can have access to the program. Sandy. Tell us a little bit about how your what your approach to organic land care and actual you know farming of vegetables and flowers and other other horticultural. Uh, yeah, well, items. one of the, the the topics that we talk about is integrated pest management, um, and which is basically starting from the least toxic method of controlling a problem and then you know working your way up. Um, so things like hand-picking insects off of crops and putting out trap crops and things like that. Um, we, we talk about all, all different things like that. Um, most master gardeners are really into organic gardening, um, and actually we have an organic garden at the extension office that I work out of that's in Bethel. And um, our uh, de- it's a demonstration vegetable garden, and the master gardeners that work in that um, run that whole garden organically, and they donate all the proceeds, uh, all the harvests, um, to area food pantries. So they really have a, a, a strong leaning to uh, protecting the environment and, um, you know, doing the least harm that we possibly can um, you know, and protecting all our critters and, and everything like that. Great. So the, the notion of organic is built into the program, it's, but it's not like across the board. You, you don't, you don't uh, totally avoid chemical uh, um, care. Actually, you know, integrated pest management uses chemicals as a last resort. You know, I mean, it's after you exhaust every other um, option. So, um, you know, you might use beneficial insects to release, you know, um, to help with the problem or, uh, you know, um, 
tunnels to keep out the cabbage worm or something like that. But we do talk about pesticides because people have to understand, you know, the safety of them. They are available and stuff like that. So we give them a background of that, you know. Um, but our focus is trying to do things in the least least harmful way to the environment. And, uh, and we do stress that in the program and talk about native plants and um, uh, removing invasive plants. Um, we have a whole class on that. Um, you know, they learn about all different uh, aspects of horticulture in the program. Vincent, any any thoughts from you on this? This is, seems to me that, uh, you know, you, you, no, actually, we, we have a, um, a gentleman here in New Haven who had um, uh, Eric Larson, who has been uh, in charge of the Edgerton Park um, Arboretum and the uh, greenhouses there. And um, he is a master gardener and has been holding classes um, at least uh, prior to the pandemic. And I know that they did have a beekeeping um, aspect to it, and I was asked to speak there, and I did. And yes, um, I actually, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I actually work with uh, Eric Larson. He's oh, my good. partner in crime. <laughs> um, Great. Yeah. He's a fantastic um, guy, um, and uh, he's been very supportive of us uh, in, in uh, keeping bees in areas of New Haven. Uh, we were we met at Yale, um, and we were uh, he was in, with Marsh Botanical Gardens at the time, and we had bees there then. We don't any longer. But it's been an interesting um, interesting thing. And it's, um, the invasives is, is a big issue um, always when it comes to uh, uh, land use. And, uh, you know, a lot of the invasives provide a lot of food for pollinators. And it's the only thing um, that some areas have um, for food. And, and, and this includes birds. And I'm talking about autumn olive and Japanese knotweed mm-hmm. and a lot of the things that people want to get rid of. And my, my take on it is that's fine. In some places really you don't want to have that there, but what are you going to put in its place that would be um, of parody of, uh, you know, kind of environment. I have a term environmental parody. What, what are you going to put in its place that will also um, do what that, that uh, invasive plant did, you know, for the environment. So, you know, it's, 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 I don't know what to say other than bees um, really, <laughs> uh, and, and many pollinators, uh, uh, absolutely need those uh, those things, but uh, I suppose there's a place for, for not having them in, in certain areas as well. Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, native. There's we try to replace those invasive plants with native plants um, that support the pollinators, and um, you know, I mean, we need native plants to support even the birds that actually uh, feed off of the insects that feed off of the plants. Everything is connected, you know, and here's the um, thing. Here's the thing, Sandy. The issue is that the, the budget, when we budget or when people budget, um, the eradication of invasives, you know, they hardly ever include in the budget a replanting. And so, you know, the, the cost of clover seed is astronomical. Certain, certain forms, uh, you know, that you could reseed with, uh, just don't seem to be, um, all that important it it just seems to be let's get rid of let's get rid of let's get rid of and um i think society in general um needs to think about uh in a little more thorough and i'm not saying your program at all is is to blame i think you guys have a fantastic program but everyone wants to get rid of invasive species without uh kind of seeing exactly 
I mean, everything everything we have almost is invasive. You know, yeah. wildlife is invasive. I mean, uh, you know. Yeah, you do need to, you know, if you remove invasives, you have to replant with something else. Or, you know, the invasive species love an open area that has nothing in it. So if you take them out and you don't put something else in its place, you know, you're going to just have a, a, a huge, larger problem than you already had before. So... Um, yeah. yeah, but isn't um, it true? Isn't it true that um, when you put native plants in, it's um, it, it's more the native pollinators that like it, like the bumblebee. No, I, I mean yes, we get a lot of we like a lot of natives, and it's important. But the other uh, insects feed off of those plants as well. So, um, but it, it is very important for the natives because um, with the invasives, uh, invasive plants that have moved in. Um, you know, first of all, they're invasive because their things are not feeding off of them are native right. insects. You know, there's no natural predators for them. So, um, you know, it's important to have these native plants um, to preserve the insects because without those plants, you don't, you won't have the, the native insects as well. And we have tons of uh, bumblebee, native bumblebees and wasps and other plants that you know feed off of those well i've heard because i've heard from people say that when they plant native plants in their garden um they attract a ton of pollinators and insects that are native and it just fills up their yard yeah it's wonderful it's wonderful and at the organic garden that we do at the extension office um in in bethel on stony hill road um they plant all different types of uh, as well in uh, ornamental gar- in the garden as well, so that they can attract some of these native pollinators. And, um, you know, a lot of times when something goes wrong in the garden, they bring it inside and we look at it under the microscope and, um, you know, we, we see a bad insect, something that's doing damage. But right alongside it, we see these um, natural enemies of the insect that are taking care of the problem. So it's really, it's, it's amazing what native plants and planting for the pollinators can do, you know, can attract all these beneficials that can keep your garden running smoothly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Well, this has been a very uh, invigorating and interesting conversation. We had a four-way, five-way thing going here. <laughs> We've got a lot, lot of pollination happening today. <laughs> I want to thank uh, all our guests, starting with Steve Munno, who's there at Massaro Farms. Steve, thank you so much. Sandy Wilson, the uh, head of the Master Gardening Program based at UConn, but all over the state at different points. And, of course, uh, Vincent Kay, who joins us the first Thursday of each month for his fantastic report. Man, I'm telling you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it, it, it never ceases to amaze me how many different tales you tell us about uh, beekeeping and all the wonderful things involved. Thank you all, Laura Mono. Thank you, Laura Modlin. Laura Mono. Laura Mono. Laura Modlin. Chris Ferriero. Can you adopt me? <laughs> Chris Ferriero, and, and for the organic part, so my, na- my yeah. name is Richard Hill. Thanks all. Thanks Thank everyone. You. Thanks everyone. Yeah, I love.
This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. State Farm Insurance says it's no longer accepting homeowner insurance applications in California due to historic increases in construction costs outpacing inflation and rapidly growing catastrophe exposure due to extreme weather events like wildfires. Multiple studies show climate change is influencing the frequency and severity of extreme weather events, increasing the risk of wildfires and also the proportion of storms that reach major hurricane status of Category 3 or above. With more frequent severe weather events and extreme weather swings, the resilience of homeowners and communities is on the line, and how lenders, insurance companies, and others incorporate escalating risks has become a key issue. According to new research, climate change-driven shifts in the circulation of waters to the deepest reaches of the ocean around Antarctica are happening decades ahead of schedule. Scientists have said that an acceleration of melting Antarctic ice and rising temperatures, driven by the emissions of planet-warming gases, is expected to have a significant effect on the global network of ocean currents that carry nutrients, oxygen, and carbon. This could not only threaten marine life, but also risk changing the ocean's crucial role in absorbing carbon dioxide and heat. Plastics recycling is far worse than we thought. The plastics industry has long hyped recycling, even though it is well aware that it's been a failure. Worldwide, only 9% of plastic waste actually gets recycled. In the United States, the rate is now 5%. Now, an alarming new study has found that even when plastics make it into a recycling center, it can still end up splintering into smaller bits that contaminate the air and water. When scientists and the public fret about sea level rise, they mostly focus on when and where communities will be permanently flooded. But there's another consequence of rising seas that will affect many more people much sooner. Isolation getting cut off from roads and other critical infrastructure. In a new paper, experts are concerned about the breadth and pace of the isolation threat. They have calculated that with one meter of sea level rise, twice as many people across the coastal United States will be isolated than will be inundated. People who live three meters above sea level may find their house will be okay, but that doesn't mean they'll be reliably able to get to the grocery store. According to the new report from a Corporate Accountability, research published last week reveals that nearly all of the carbon offsets Chevron relies on to cancel out its planet heating emissions are likely worthless, rendering the oil giant's so-called net-zero aspiration a masterclass in greenwashing that threatens to exacerbate the fossil fuel-driven climate crisis. According to experts, at least 93% of the voluntary carbon market offsets Chevron purchased encountered toward its climate targets between 2020 and 2022 are of low environmental integrity and therefore appear to be junk until or unless proven otherwise. The Eurasia Review reports on a new study that says intense agriculture activity beginning in the mid-1800s has eroded the U.S. Midwest topsoil, the rich upper layer of soil that crops need to grow. That erosion causes nearly $3 billion in annual losses from lower crop productivity, but if more farmers adopt more sustainable no-till or low-till practices, costly erosion could be essentially halted. 
As found in the publication IFL Science, the impact of humans on the planet is undeniable. But how much is too much? Researchers have produced the first quantification of the boundaries for a safe and just planet, and they show that we are taking a huge risk with the welfare of our planet and gambling with the whole future of our civilization. To be safe and just, the global temperature anomaly needs to be below 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. The just portion has already been breached, and now billions of people are exposed to harm from the climate crisis. This was the Gaia-gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en. This is WPKN.